0: If you have your Bible this morning, I would love for you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, as we continue this series, Messy Church, that we've been going through in this letter uh, of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we have seen uh, a number of things uh, that are um, less than ideal in this new uh, Christian community in Corinth. We've seen uh, fighting in, in, uh, amongst them between the divisions that they are placing importance on different leaders. Uh, we've seen them struggle with sexual uh, immorality issues. Uh, In chapter 5, we see one man sleeping with his stepmother and the other Corinthian believers boasting on their acceptance and their tolerance of, of this behavior. We saw last week with this idea of Uh, sexual immorality in their worship, that coming from a lifestyle of worship in which sexual immorality was one of the main components of their faith, now they're struggling with what a sexual ethic under the lordship of Jesus means. And so we kind of started a a mini-series in this theme uh, of sexual uh, ethics under the identity and lordship of Jesus, Uh, and this morning we see a little bit of a shift taking place in that little kind of mini-series. Paul will say this morning, uh, now for the matters that you wrote about. And we'll see this kind of refrain uh, continue on throughout the letter from this point forward. He'll either say now about or now concerning or now for the matters he wrote about, uh, indicating that at some point these Corinthian believers had written a letter to Paul asking about all of these kind of different issues, all these kinds of questions that they had about this newfound faith. Uh, And so we begin to look at some kind of specifics that are uh, relevant to their culture but also continue to be relevant to ours. And yet even in this shift, this kind of section, we still see Paul continuing this theme uh, of sexual morality and what it looks like to uh, live out our sexuality under uh, Jesus. And so this morning we kind of have the first of a two-part series uh, on marriage and singleness. Now, I wanted to just kind of give this disclaimer, of course, because I know that one of these two weeks will apply to roughly 50% of you at a time. Uh, You're either married or or you're single. And so with that, I want to to encourage you not to check out on the week that, you know, doesn't apply to your relational status. Because I think both of these things are important to us uh, as we serve as one body in the church. So if you're married this morning, I want to encourage you to take this opportunity, not just to grow uh, in what we know about our relationships and what the Bible tells us about our marital relationships, but also to be considering what it means to be single in, this, in the church. And to not count our single, uh, single people, as the church often does, as second-class citizens or less than, or one day they'll get married and they'll join the ranks, but rather look at them and the unique opportunities that they have to serve the kingdom. And likewise, if you're single, I want to encourage you that, you know, maybe for you, singleness is you don't intend to get married, and that's okay. You're not less than because of that. But also to recognize the unique opportunities that you have to serve the kingdom out of your singleness. Paul will talk about how that is even a blessing in some ways. But also to recognize that a healthy church has healthy marriages, and to not discount the relational statuses of those around you. And so I want to just put that disclaimer up front that whether you're married or single, so this week or next, that there are opportunities to glean from and encourage one another, regardless of what your relational status may be. So as we talk about marriage this morning and then singleness next week, I want to qualify, first of all, when it comes to marriage, that I am no expert. Uh, My wife can attest that I am far from the perfect husband. She even whispered to me a minute ago, it must be so easy for you to preach on marriage since you have a perfect wife. I said, oh, I thought it was because I was a perfect husband. So, uh, but I, I can attest that there are times where I have what one of my college professors called uh, DMS, dense male syndrome. And I think, uh, wives, you can recognize this in your husbands at times. You know, that we don't always know or say or do the right things. And likewise, wives don't always say or do or know the right things. But I hope that I can say that I am a better husband now than I was over 13 years ago when I got married. But it was in the early days of my marriage when one of my scariest marital moments happened. Uh, I think maybe a better way to say it was a scary my scariest minister ministerial moment, but thankfully it wasn't a moment in my own marriage. Uh, there's a couple in our congregation, the first church that we served, that uh, asked me to officiate their wedding, and I had been married for all of three weeks at that point, so I knew they came to the expert for a reason. Uh, And so I went to the rehearsal dinner and the the rehearsal and and all of that and when I got there the mother of the groom came to me and she said now we don't have a a wedding coordinator and and, and a lot of these people haven't been in church before so if you just want to kind of take charge and tell people where to go uh, go ahead and do that and I thought no problem I can do that and she said and if you just want to call the whole thing off that's great too. Like, and my jaw just hit the floor because, and I I said, "What, what what did you, if you just want to cancel this thing, that's great. I'm like, what do I do with that? Like, where do I go from here? And of course, you know, I think it's, you know, I want to report that happy, you know, healthy marriage and, and they're still married to this day uh, and, and continue, you know, they have a, a family and all of those things. But in that moment, you know, here I am with the mother of the groom saying, you know, there's apparently enough of an issue to just, you know, shut the whole thing down. I'm wondering, is this going to be a relationship that ends in marital bliss or is this going to be a, a, a marital miss? And so uh, this morning, I want to look at that same kind of question. Uh, Are we bound and are relationships formed uh, destined for marital bliss or marital miss? In other words, what does it take to have a healthy marriage? And I think we find some answers to that question this morning in 1 Corinthians 7 as Paul continues with this theme theme of Christian sexuality. First of all, uh, I want to look at three different areas, three things that a healthy marriage requires. And the first one is this, a healthy marriage requires selflessness. And as we go through this this morning, I want to, yes, speak to the married in this room, but also to realize that some of these things just apply to our relationships in general. And so maybe you're, you're single and plan to stay that way. Maybe you're single and plan to get married one day. Uh, whatever your relational status might be, some of these are just good uh, keys toward relationships in general. And so the first thing that a healthy relationship or healthy marriage requires is selfishness. selflessness. Selflessness. Uh, not, not selfishness, Selflessness. Uh, verse 1, Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, this is their question, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships, relations with a woman. Uh, the Corinthians have written this letter to Paul, and they're coming from this highly sexualized culture that we have talked about. Uh, many of them are concerned with how they live out this biblical sexual ethic that Paul has been teaching them about. And so the conclusion that they come to, that some of them have formed, is that maybe it's just better to avoid sexual relationships altogether. They're thinking, you know, you can't be sexually impure if you just don't have sex at all, right? And so some of them have applied that even into their own marriages. And so Paul responds to this, to, to correct this idea uh, of to how to live out sexual purity. That we don't just, in our marriages or in our relationships, avoid sex, but rather than avoiding it, we keep and live out uh, sex in the proper context of the selflessness of marriage. Verse 2, he continues, he says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the wife does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, husbands, I need you to stop what you're doing, put the highlighters down for just a second, because some of you think, I just found my new favorite Bible verse. I'm going to go home today and say, you know, wife, uh, you wanted me to apply the Bible to my life more, and I'm going to start with what Bryce taught about today. But put the brakes on for just a second, and really look at what God is telling us here. Uh, Paul says, look, there are certain benefits to remaining single. Uh, In fact, he'll talk more about that as we'll look at next week. But God has put marriage in its place as a means to keep sexual purity in its proper context. I think a good way to think of it is to think of a fire. If you have a fire in a container, a fire pit or a fireplace, that is a great thing. It brings warmth, it brings light, it brings this ambiance to it. But we don't have to look far, even in our own news, to see what a fire out of that context can do. The destruction and damage and havoc it can wreak. When when fire is outside of its proper context, it causes damage and destruction. And sex can be the same way. And so Paul is telling us here this morning that marriage is designed to keep fire in the fireplace, to keep sexual intimacy in its proper context. And so as husbands and wives, we should offer ourselves to one another as a means of living out our holiness. Paul says, and and we just both last week and this week, we have seen, he says, husbands, you you don't own your bodies. If you're a Christian, you're first owned by God. We talked about that being bought at a price, being God's temple. And secondly, you're owned by your wife. And likewise, wives, you, you don't own your bodies. If you're a Christian, you're owned first by God as his temple being bought at a price. And then secondly, owned by your husband's. And we we know this ownership is one of mutual benefit, that we don't own each other out of oppression or or kind of slavery, but we are owning each other in the ways that we surrender to one another. And so what does this mean for us? Because I think it's easy to abuse this principle, but if you can, you know, if you think of this as a, a license to demand something from your spouse at any time you want, then you're kind of missing the whole point. And if you apply this only to your sexual relationship, you're also missing the point. What it means is that what your wife wants is more important than what you want. And what your husband wants is more important than what you want. And when we practice this in this continual cycle of deferring to the other person and serving the other person, then each of us not just grow closer together and have a healthier relationship, a healthier marriage, but we also begin to look a lot more like Jesus. Philippians 2 verse 3 says about all relationships, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. If each of us looked at the interests of the other person and took care of our spouse's needs before our own, how much better, how much stronger, how much healthier would our marriages be with just that one simple thing? Healthy marriages require selflessness. The second thing we see that a healthy relationship marriage requires, in addition to selflessness, is that Paul goes on to say that healthy marriages require time together, specifically time of intimacy. He says in verse 5, "'Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you are as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that.'" As Paul addresses this idea of time together, he does so in terms of intimacy. That as a married couple, part of your duty to one another is to be physically and relationally intimate with one another. And he says this not just as an expression of selflessness, but also as a safeguard in marriage. But I think sometimes we can use uh, intimacy as a weapon in our relationships. how many times have we seen kind of that sitcom trope of the witless husband who says something insensitive and his wife deems him cut off, you know? And I think too often as spouses and in our culture, we see and view sex as a weapon or as a behavioral reinforcement. If you do what I want you to do, then I will reward you with sex. But that's not the way it's supposed to work. He says, don't deprive each other unless agreed to, and then only for a period of time until you can come together again in this expression of love. And so men, here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you can go home and say, the preacher said that we get to be intimate whenever I want, and you can't say no because I didn't agree to it. And women, what that doesn't mean is you can't say, sorry, I can't be intimate with you tonight because God said I could pray instead. Uh, Because the sexual expression in marriage is just a small portion of what it means to spend this time together. I I love the way somebody said it. It says sexual intimacy is the fruit while relational, relational intimacy is the root. In other words, the expression of sexual intimacy is the result or the product of an overall closeness as a whole, as a couple. Now, I think this is one of the reasons that God deems marriage as the context for sexual relationships, because in a marriage, what you are doing with your lives is expressing in all relational aspects, that you are vulnerable and naked before the other person, not just physically, but your life as a whole. And so doing what, having physical nakedness without relational nakedness is, is cheap. And it cuts short what the the physical intimacy is supposed to be, an expression of what you're doing with your entire life. And so sexual intimacy in your marriage is just one expression of the love that you have for one another. There's a book uh, by Kevin Lehman called Sex Begins in the Kitchen, and it's not what you think, uh, but he's talking about this idea of relational intimacy. That the intimacy that we have uh, sexually is an extension of all the everyday moments of life. Sex, he says, "Intimacy is more than what just happens in the bedroom. It's about how you pour your love into each other in every moment of your marriage, and service, and encouragement, and in support, and in building that foundation." And so, I want to encourage you, married couples, to spend time together, to spend time just the two of you. Uh, when you are newlyweds, you will often hear the common phrase, or almost cliche phrase, you know, "Continue to date your spouse." And you're like, "Yeah, yeah, I get it, but it's true." To continue to spend that time together. Because invariably, as you spend, you know, long time in marriage and kids come along and life gets busy, it's easy to fall into that rut of just going through the motions until that, you know, the starry-eyed days of your young love turn into just seeing that lump of flesh on the other side of the couch on their phone. And so spend time together. Come together and and find that time to continue to date one another and, and discover the interests of the other person. For young couples, I encourage you to take time without your kids. Get a babysitter, call in grandparents, call in a friend, put your kids to bed in their own beds and spend time just the two of you. It always made me laugh when we were in college, Kelsey would babysit for the president of our college. And here I think, you know, the president of the college, you know, big, important guy, most humble man I've ever met in my life, but he and his wife would use this opportunity to have Kelsey come over and watch their six children uh, to go on a date to McDonald's and then go grocery shopping together. And it always made me laugh just because that's what they chose to do on their date nights. But they were spending time together and focusing on that relational intimacy, just the two of them. And so I want to encourage you, to spend your time just together. Even if you have young children in the home, spend time just the two of you. It's healthy for your kids to know that your number one priority is their mom or their dad. Healthy marriages require time together. The last thing healthy marriages require is a lifelong commitment. I have the great privilege and was incredibly fortunate to come from a family that gave me a rich heritage of healthy marriages. Both sets of my grandparents, one was married for over 50 years and the other for over 60 years before their spouses died and passed away. I think of Ed and Glenda that were just here up here a few weeks ago, uh, renewing their vows and celebrating 65 years of marriage. 66 years of marriage. Didn't want to cut that one short. 66 years uh, of marriage. And even the the same saying in my home is what they said that day. We decided when we got married, Ed said, that divorce was not going to be part of our vocabulary. It was just not an option. And and I look at those heritages and those those relationships, and one of the reasons I thought it was so important uh, to have that kind of vow renewal as a part of our service is to encourage all of our marriages to look at what comes from a lifelong commitment. But I also know that that might not be true of the families that you come from. We've all heard that the divorce rate is about 50%, and while I don't think that's entirely accurate, I think it's a little less, and it's not beyond our imagination to uh, think that half of, about half of all marriages end in divorce. And so Paul reminds us that healthy marriages require a lifelong commitment. Verse 10, he says, "'To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband.' But if she does, she must remain married or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. In Matthew 19, Jesus talks about this issue. Someone comes to him and asks him about this idea of divorce when it's appropriate. And Jesus, in his response, gives unmarital faithfulness as the only permissible reason. And I've seen many, many marriages over the course of ministry that have come through and pushed through adultery on the part of one spouse. And they've gone through counseling and they put healthy boundaries in place and they've come out stronger and had greater testimonies of God's grace and faithfulness even in the midst of their own unfaithfulness. But I've also seen couples that, in many cases, the pain caused by that unfaithfulness, the broken vows of that marriage is just too much to rebuild, too much to overcome. And so God, in those instances, gives permission for a divorce to occur because those bonds are already broken. But many of these Corinthian Christians have another question. I mean, they're first generation Christians here, and so they have come to know Jesus, but many of them had been married before that, and they know that, that Christ's teaching, the church's teaching, is that believers shouldn't be married to unbelievers, and so they're wondering now what do we do? You know, they got married before, one of them has become a Christian, and they're thinking, you know, if my husband or my wife isn't a Christian, should I leave him? Should I leave her? And so Paul says this in verse 12 He says, to the, re- to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called you to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Where Jesus gives the concession of adultery as means of divorce, Paul extends here and talks about the kind of principle of abandonment. He talks about those whose spouses choose to to leave and choose not to be married, and you can't be married to someone who chooses not to be married to you. But I also know what Paul speaks about this morning in terms of living with and being married to an unbeliever is more than just theoretical for you. Some of you come here week in and week out, and you come without your spouse. And for some of you, that just means your spouse doesn't attend church. But for others, you have a husband or a wife who's chosen not to believe what you believe. Chosen not to acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Or maybe when you got married, neither of you were Christians, but since that time, Jesus took hold of your heart, but not the other person's. Kelsey told me not too long ago of some friends that she has, uh, a lady she knows in Oklahoma, that they were married, they were Christians. All of a sudden, one day, her husband just decided he was years in the marriage done with this whole Jesus thing. And the woman was kind of left wondering, you know, what do I do with that? That's not what I signed up for. That's not what I thought I was getting into. And maybe that's your situation as well. And so God gives us this answer that if, you, if they want to stay with you, you stay with them. If they choose to abandon you, then there's nothing you can do, but you remain faithful. And so if this is your circumstance, your situation, you have are married to an unbelieving spouse, I want to offer you a few encouragements, a few uh, things that you can do to help in that situation. First of all, we see that Paul says that uh, in this instance, the unbelieving spouse is sanctified. He says, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Now Paul does not say saved here. He's not nullifying the the saving power of the cross. The unbeliever though is set apart. They have a special opportunity to be in constant contact with someone who can live out Jesus in their lives each and every day. And I think likewise this kind of relationship, this kind of marriage demonstrates God's own love for us. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't Wait until we chose him to love us. And likewise, we can still love our spouses who don't love Jesus. The third thing is that, G- that Paul talks about is the idea of what it means for our children. Your kids deserve to grow up with a mom and dad who love them, and a mom and dad who are married and committed to one another. In fact, statistically, your children have a greater chance of finding Jesus if their parents stay together. So I want to encourage you, for the sake of your kids, to make every effort to make your marriage work. But the most important thing I can encourage you to do, if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, is to pray for that person, to pray for their, their salvation, to pray for them to be the spouse that they need to be, pray for you to be the spouse that you need to be to them. I cannot tell you how many times in ministry over the last 15 years I've heard about people who prayed and prayed and prayed for their spouse for years, for decades even, to come to know Jesus until the day they finally got to come and introduce me to them and tell them they are here to be baptized this morning. They want to give their lives to Jesus. So don't discount what the grace of Jesus can do through you as you minister to and you pray for your unbelieving spouse. Paul says this way, How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now you might be wondering this morning, especially if you're a single person, why devote a whole Sunday to this? Why devote a whole sermon to this? Now, aside from the fact that I think it's important to talk about healthy marriages, we also see something beyond this. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul is talking uh, another place about husbands and wives, about husbands being servant leaders and wives being supporters. In the end of this section, he says, "I'm talking about Christ and the church." For Paul, marriage is a metaphor. The relationship that spouses have being an indication or an illustration of the relationship between Jesus and the church. And so as you live out your relationship as husband and wife, what you're really representing to the world is how much Jesus loves his people. And so husbands, as Christians, the world will be looking to you to see how you treat your wives. Your love and your care for her is one way that God has chosen to love and reveal chosen to reveal his love for the people and the world around us. And so, husbands, the way that you love your wife is very well how others might judge the love of Jesus. And wives, in the same way as Christians, the world will be looking to you to see how you treat your husbands. Your love and respect for him is a picture of how the church is to live in service to Christ. And so the way that you love your husband might very well be the way the world sees how the church loves Jesus. You see, a marriage as more than simply two lives coming together. As two people who have pledged their lives to Christ, your marriage is a light into the world and a symbol of greater realities. And so I want to encourage you as married couples this morning to remain strong, to seek out a healthy marriage. Not just for your sake and the sake of your family, but for the sake of the church as a whole. To be selfless with one another. To spend time together. To pursue that lifelong commitment. Because I think the church is always stronger when its marriages are strong. And one of the ways that we build a stronger church and a stronger witness is the way that we live out our marriages. The church is strong when her families are strong. So I want to close a little bit differently this morning. I want you to just ask, it might be weird, but if you're married, I I just want you to stand up. Now, if you are not married, um, there's, um, This is. we'll talk about this week next week, you are not lesser than. But I do want to spend this as an opportunity this morning to encourage the marriages in this room. And so if you are near somebody who's standing, I want you to just, even if you are standing yourself, reach out a hand uh, and, and maybe just place a hand on their shoulder. Um, if, you can, if you're distant from somebody, just reach out a hand toward them. Uh, as an encouragement, uh, as we pray together, uh, pray for the marriages in this room, that we will be selfless. Uh, that we'll spend time together and that we will pursue that lifelong commitment. Let's do that now. Uh, Father God, as we come before you this morning, I want to pray for the marriages in this room. Uh, For those who are standing, it could be one year, two years, it could be 66 years uh, of marriage, of being together in this relationship. Uh, God, I pray that you would uh, just strengthen these couples. That would be an opportunity this morning to have a, a be, maybe even be a turning point. It's not beyond uh, the, the realm of imagination to know that uh, marriage is hard and struggles arise. And maybe one couple in this room, maybe more, even thinking about what it means to go forward and maybe they're thinking that they can't make it. I pray that this would be an opportunity that as a hand is placed on their shoulder, that they would focus on that marital relationship. God, I pray for these couples to be selfless in how they relate to one another, to each deferring to the, the service of the other person, to put the other person's needs before their own. God, I pray for their intimacy, their relational intimacy as they share their lives together, that it would grow in, in strength and grow in uh, just uh, expression of how they love one another. God, I pray that as they are standing, that whether they're, they're newlyweds or have been married a long time, that you would continue to help them pursue that lifelong commitment. We always know that marriage, we say, when we started out, is until death do us part. But things come along and fractures happen. And it's, God, I pray that you would not let those fractures go unhealed, but that you would strengthen them and you would bind them up, that you would bring greater understanding. Bring patience, bring love and forgiveness and mercy and grace to these relationships. God, I'm thankful that the testimony of those standing in this room is this morning. And those who are not standing are not lesser than. But we today take this opportunity to pray for the marriages that are witnesses to what Jesus, Jesus love for us and the church's love for Jesus. God, I want to pray a special blessing on those in this room who maybe have lost a spouse who are faithful and married for many, many years, and God did all of these things, and their, other, their loved one has gone on to meet Jesus, and I just pray that you would bless them today and use their experience and their wisdom and their commitment to, to foster the next generation of marriages. God, we thank you for Jesus and for the grace that he bestowed on us, the grace that we bestow on one another as husband and wife. I pray all this in his name. Amen.